This is Danny Rabin from Marbin, and you're listening to EE Times on air. This is your EE Times weekly briefing. Today is Friday, April 5th. Among the top stories this week, Intel's new memory architecture. An exclusive interview with Greg Travis, veteran software engineer and instrument-rated pilot. We ask him if Boeing 737 MAX MCAS software can be fixed. We also look at ST Microelectronics' strategic priority on silicon carbide. And how the risk-averse business mentality is making Japan's car OEMs slow to embrace the global auto market's shifting focus on mobility services. Japanese corporations are willing to flock together into a big group, but not because they are willing to work hard together. They do so because they don't want to take big risks. All that to come, but first, we begin with a story from our EE Times Silicon Valley Bureau. Junko Yoshida, global editor-in-chief of Aspen Core Media, asks Silicon Valley Bureau Chief Rick Merritt about his recent visit to Hillsborough, Oregon, for Intel's briefings. Hi, Rick. So you posted two stories this week about Intel, which I assume came out of your recent visit to Hillsborough, Oregon. Give us the rundown of new stuff they unveiled. Hi, Junko. So what Intel is doing today or this week is rolling out a whole slew of its data center chips of 40 plus new Xeons, its first 10 nanometer FPGA, which I think is the most interesting uh, part of the deal, and uh, Optane memories on DIMMs for the first time. Uh, This is all chips that go into Intel's strongest and most profitable growth market. So it's really important for the company. What does Intel's new memory architecture entail? Why does the industry need it? And what are the challenges? The memory part of this announcement was really interesting because, you know, we've been following this Optane, used to be called 3D X-Point memory for going on five years now. And there's been a lot of interest in it because Intel built it as, you know, the first new memory architecture next to DRAM and NAND in in decades. Uh, Unfortunately, as it turns out, you got to do a lot of work to bring that into a DIM, and Intel did that work, including a lot of the software work, but it's still going to only be available on select applications where the software is in place. And frankly, the performance benefits weren't overwhelming uh, to anyone. They were interesting, but relatively modest in the sort of range of 30, 40% kind of benefits, although it's a complex performance story because it varies a lot with every different kind of application. And there's maybe a half a dozen that Intel is, is still kind of sorting through right now. And unfortunately, the chips come at a time when the DRAM market is tanking, the prices are going down. So the price difference that Intel hoped to make a difference with here with with Optane memories just isn't going to be there for them. So one of the analysts I talked to said back in 2015, when this was first announced, he projected that if all goes really well for Intel, they could make $2 billion in the first two years of rolling this stuff out. Optane dims. Now, he says, given the changing dynamics and the new performance metrics, he says, eh, it's probably more like $200 million over the next two years. So that's a big difference. You laid out in your stories, Rick, that some advances in Intel's new CPUs, FPGAs, and memory modules have come at a cost of Intel proprietary lock-ins. What concerns are you hearing from the engineering community on this? So 
strategically here, Intel is trying to do a really interesting thing that I think a lot of other companies will do too, which is that while Moore's law is slowing and so the performance gains in any one chip aren't as great as they had been in the past, they're trying to tie many chips together. In this case, Xeon processors and FPGAs over a cache-coherent processor bus with Optane DIMMs using Intel's proprietary DDRT protocol. And then together, they will all give bigger boosts than any one chip. It's sort of the, the dog sled metaphor is the way I think about this. And it's smart. It's what companies are going to increasingly do. Uh, but Intel is adding this kicker of having proprietary interconnects between the Xeon and the FPGA and the Optane. I talked to two top data center engineers and a couple of analysts, and they both said they really think this is going to be a non-starter. Uh, companies don't want to get locked in. It's bad enough for most of them that they depend upon Intel for their processors. They don't want to be locked in and dependent upon them for some of their memories as well. So strategically, it makes sense. Practically, we don't think it's going to go over. And that was kind of the story that we came away from in Hillsborough. That was Junko Yoshida and Rick Merritt reporting. And now, science and technology writer George Leopold, who recently wrote an in-depth analysis entitled Software Won't Fix Boeing's Faulty Airframe, sat down with Greg Travis for an exclusive interview with EE Times on air. Mr. Travis, who was quoted in George's story, recently posted a damning critique of the 737 MAX fiasco. As Boeing hurriedly updates its MCAS software, Mr. Travis explains if the updates can save the Boeing 737 MAX. The cognitive frame that's being promoted by the industry, the media, the FAA, etc., is that there is a problem. And what do you do with problems? You fix them. But let's step back from the problem mindset for a bit. In my piece, I argued not so much that MCAS couldn't be fixed. I argued that it shouldn't be fixed. Specifically, what I wanted to convey was the concept of normal failure. That as systems become more complicated... Failure of those systems becomes a normal aspect of their nature. In his book, Normal Accidents, Charles Perrault points out that a characteristic of normal failure is that the interactions between components of a complex system become incomprehensible. Thus, we cannot predict in advance how all of the pieces of a system will couple, how a failure in one area can cascade into other areas, how fail-safes nonetheless fail. We don't know just how bad the pitch-up problem in the 737 MAX is but I'm hoping that there is something short of MCAS that can be brought to address it. Again, I don't want to see MCAS fixed. I want to see it gone. Mr. Travis also argues that the 737 MAX airframe design is fundamentally flawed, but is it too late to fix? I think to address that, we need to look at the 737's history, specifically how it has evolved over the years. And almost all of the story there is the story of the 737's engines. For access reasons, the 737 was designed to sit low to the ground. That was okay when it had its original low-bypass JT-8 engines. But then the A320 came along 20 years later, and the A320 started life with a CFM-56 engine. Boeing had to follow suit and squeeze a smaller version of the CFM-56 into the classic line of 737s. And when the A320 got the Leap engine, Boeing once again scrambled to make it fit. That hasn't gone so well. I think this is nature's way of telling us that the 737 has run out of steam. They tried to kludge the Leap engine in, using MCAS as the band-aid, with disastrous results. And finally, as George Leopold points out, the Boeing 737 MAX saga raises many engineering ethics issues. 
Among them, Mr. Travis has cited cultural laziness within the software community. Here, Mr. Travis offers his perspective on how we got to this point and the lessons we are all left to learn. Something unspeakably terrible happened with regard to the development of MCAS. We had a flight-critical system that could configure the aircraft, that had overwhelming control authority, that took as its only input a single angle of attack sensor. You never do that in aviation, despite what Boeing is saying. And the reason it did so was because if it took inputs from more than one sensor, then there would be a need to be some kind of disagreement detection and fail-safe, all of which would require pilot training, which Boeing took off the table. As the saying goes, a man with one watch always knows what time it is, and a man with two watches is never sure. For money reasons, Boeing wanted the surety that only one sensor can give, even if it's deadly wrong. What I don't understand is how it happened. How could the company leadership imperil the company's reputation so recklessly? How could the hundreds of engineers look the other way when confronted with something so wrong? This is the organizational story. This is the bureaucratic story. This is the political and engineering story of a lifetime. We turn now to Nitin Dahad, EE Times London Bureau Chief Correspondent, who recently visited Catania, Italy to explore ST Microelectronics' big plans for silicon carbide. Nitin also spoke with ST CEO Jean-Marc Chery. Here's Junko asking Nitin about ST's silicon carbide strategy. Hi, Nitin. You visited ST Microelectronics in Catania, Italy last week. What was the big news? Thanks, Junko. The context is that the big industry driver, excuse the pun, in electronics right now seems to be electric and hybrid vehicles, which is all part of the holy grail of autonomous vehicles that everyone is talking about. And for that, energy and power management electronics will be key. And ST was keen to emphasize its core competence in this area, particularly with its silicon carbide plant in Catania in Italy. If you've followed ST's financial earnings over the last year, You'll have heard how CEO Jean-Marc Sherry consistently tells the industry that silicon carbide is a strategic priority and ST wants to capture 30% of a 3.7 billion US dollar silicon carbide market by 2025. So ST was essentially saying, look at where we are already in silicon carbide, why this technology is important for the future and how we're going to get there. So what are the challenges and how's ST addressing these? Good question. I actually put that question to Jean-Marc. This is what he said. The short-term challenge is definitely the supply chain. So both the raw material maker and the device maker, all these guys, they have to align the supply chain in terms of volume versus the fast adoption of, let's say, the electrical car. Uh, also, sooner or later, uh, you will have a strong push uh, to demonstrate that the electrical cars are power efficient. So silicon carbide, okay, will have to go because uh, the only way to be very power efficient with an electrical car is to use uh, the MOSFET on silicon carbide. This is the first challenge. Then the second challenge would be, as usual, for new devices, uh, we will have to decrease the cost. Uh, so we will have to uh, shrink the device, we will have to increase the wafer size, and we will have to decrease the cost of material, and we will have to optimize the design of the module. So first challenge as a takeaway is uh, supply chain, volumes. Second challenge is 
usual business as usual new device is cost reduction. As he says, the big challenges are supply chain and device cost. Just as an example, in an electric vehicle, silicon carbide might add an additional upfront cost of $300, but overall there could be a $2,000 saving as a result of savings in battery cost, EV space, and cooling. On the supply chain and ecosystem, ST has been making moves to address this, first with its $250 million silicon carbide wafer supply agreement with Cree, and then with its acquisition of a 55% stake in Norstel, which it ultimately intends to fully acquire. And we can expect more, as ST executives suggested they want to control more of the supply chain. So I would expect more news on this front coming as a result of the Norstel acquisition. The company is also developing its third-generation planar technology for silicon carbide MOSFETs, as well as developing the next generation in parallel using trenched technology. On top of this, it plans to move from 6-inch wafers to 8-inch wafers by 2025. Okay, I understand that's ST's pitch, but what's your take on all this? While the big pitch was on silicon carbide, ST's broader offer to the power electronics needs of industry features gallium nitride too which ST also announced it is working with Macom, and we reported on this earlier this year. Wait, Nitin, does ST plan to bring both SIC and GAN to electric vehicles? Actually, both silicon carbide and gallium nitride are part of ST's power strategy. The former targeting electric vehicles due to its higher voltage operation, and the latter targeting RF and especially 5G due to its higher operating frequency. But ST says future developments of GAN products will target automotive, particularly onboard chargers for EV and mild hybrid powertrains. Coming back to the big issue in silicon carbide, it is indeed the availability of raw materials. So ST's moves to address this with Norstel in particular will be one to keep a close watch on, especially as ST said it wants to be more vertically integrated. My personal take is that while the electronics industry in general is betting big on EVs, which is what is driving the demand for silicon carbide, I don't yet see that translated into consumer uptake of EVs, particularly as many countries still lack essentials like charging infrastructure. So while the electronics industry is busy readying itself for that consumer-led demand and sorting out supply-side issues, the vehicle manufacturers themselves still need to do a lot of work in enabling more consumer demand for EVs, both in terms of cost and infrastructure. That was Nitin Dahad and Junko Yoshida reporting from Catania. Junko is also in Tokyo this week and shares her perspective on Japan's automotive industry. She draws a parallel between Japan's automotive industry and the Japanese consumer electronics industry, whose complacency led them to go in a downward spiral. Here's Junko with more. I'm worried about the future of Japan's automotive industry. I have this bad feeling that Japanese automakers might be following the same course that led the Japanese consumer electronics industry into a downward spiral. Usually, two factors contribute to the decline of successful corporations, arrogance and complacency. The combination is fatal, especially when revolutionary changes are afoot in the industry and on the market. Take Sony, Panasonic, and Sharp. Although they knew applications-intensive digital consumer devices were about to alter the very nature of the CE landscape, they chose to stubbornly stick to what they knew, hardware design. They convinced themselves that so long as they developed 
high quality, high resolution, high fidelity audio and video products, they could somehow weather the building storm. Similarly, Japanese automakers today are sailing into troubled waters. On one hand, their vehicle sales are due for stall as people worldwide opt for pay-per-use services over car ownership. Meanwhile, new entrants to the industry, such as Google's Waymo and startups like Uber and Lyft, are shifting the automotive business from building cars to selling transportation services. So what do Japanese car OEMs do? They're keeping their heads down, waiting for a low-risk, high-return option to emerge. Against this background, Honda and Japan's truck maker Kino Motors announced last week that they're investing in a venture called Monet Technologies, founded by Toyota and SoftBank, to develop self-driving car services in Japan. Monet is advocating commercial mobility business based on a platform called ePallet. Proposed applications range from on-demand stores to distribution and food trucks, as well as on-demand shuttle buses and mobile emergency rooms. Such commercial mobility services might sound unique, but here's a $64 billion question. Can Monet save Japan's automakers? KOEMs in Japan, generally speaking, have been late to the autonomous driving party and slow to build their own mobility as a service business. I have doubts. Here's why. First, Monet Technologies is bragging about the formation of a big consortium of 88 Japanese companies. On the list are companies such as Coca-Cola Bottles Japan, beverage maker Santori, Yamato Holdings, a Japanese delivery company, and Yahoo Japan. Here's what everybody should know. Consortiums in Japan aren't ecosystems. Japanese corporations are willing to flock together into a big group, but not because they are willing to work hard together. They do so because they don't want to take big risks all by themselves. Consortiums often founded in Japan do not necessarily guarantee concerted success. Second, Monet Technologies CEO Junichi Miyakawa made a bold promise in an interview with one of the Japanese newspapers by claiming, quote, we won't let foreign corporations take over Japan's mobility as a service market. We won't repeat the same mistake we made when Google, Facebook, and Amazon took over our internet market, unquote. To me, this was a clear red flag. Never trust a Japanese executive who resorts to flag-waving. Success in business has nothing to do with allegiance to the domestic market. In this day and age, no company succeeds without a global vision. This is Junko Yoshida, EE Times, reporting from Tokyo. This has been your weekly briefing from EE Times and the Aspen Core Global Service. You can read all of these stories and more at eetimes.com. Thanks for listening.